In a few moments, I'll be talking about the symbolic use of empty space in Pavel Pavlovsky's Ida. But before that, I want to talk about theatre in the time of ancient Greece. Over two and a half thousand years ago, dramatists such as Sophocles, Euripides and Aeschylus wrote plays with the express intention of delivering to the audience a cathartic experience. This was because theatre was considered a divine arena. The word cathartic is Greek in origin and means cleansing, from which we get cataract, tears, the idea being that through experiencing strong emotions such as tragedy, the audience approaches upon a realm of spiritual discovery. Or again to use a Greek term, epiphanin, from which we get the word epiphany, meaning reveal. In other words, through catharsis, through cleansing, the divine is revealed to us. Because the theatre was a sacred space, no violence could be depicted on stage. For instance, when Sophocles wrote Oedipus Rex in 429 BC, he had the king find Jocasta, his wife and mother, was dead. This discovery drove him to pluck out his eyes. But instead of having Oedipus simulate the action in front of the audience, Sophocles took him off stage, and in his absence, he had the chorus describe the event. He dragged the golden brooches from her dress and lifting them, struck them upon his eyeballs, crying out, you have looked enough upon those you ought never to have looked upon, failed long enough to know those that you should have known. Henceforth you shall be dark. The blood poured down. And not with a few slow drops, but all at once over his beard in a dark cataract of scarlet. Because Greek culture was the first one in Europe to transition from an oral tradition to a written one, Greek drama has had more influence over Western storytelling than any other. However, that does not mean that each subsequent era has done exactly what the Greeks did. Ancient Rome, for instance, restaged the Greek myths, but with one big difference. With the gladiatorial contests in the Colosseum, the public were quite used to violence. Several historical sources cite that in response to the public's enthusiasm for greater levels of realism, Rome's authorities ruled that death in Greek mythology could be realistically depicted by using criminals condemned to death for special reenactments. Murder assassination, execution, self-mutilation, suicide. It was all there for all to see. By the time Shakespeare penned his plays in Elizabethan England, a sort of middle ground had been negotiated, which meant that violence was permitted on stage, but only a simulation of it. With Romeo and Juliet and Julius Caesar, Macbeth and King Lear, that shift is still impacting centuries later, and the debate now focuses on what level of violence is permissible on screen. From D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation, Louis Milestone's All Quiet on the Western Front, Jean Renoir's La Grande Illusion, and Stanley Kubrick's Paths of Glory, to Con Ichikawa's Fires on the Plain, Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now, Elam Klimov's Come and See, and Steven Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan, generations of filmmakers have had to tread the line between horror and catharsis, between disgust and epiphany. And for what purpose? To move us to tears and thus reveal the divine? With their seemingly ever more visceral depictions of violence, some filmmakers only achieve in delivering a numbing shock. 
So much so that there seems to be an almost fetishist obsession with the verisimilitude of death. But how do you portray a death where the divine was apparently absent? I'm speaking of the Holocaust. How do filmmakers treat the atrocity? An early depiction of a Nazi concentration camp came in 1940 with the British film Night Train to Munich. Released mere months after the outbreak of the war in Europe, the film was pushed into production with little more design than propaganda. It is set in 1938 when the Nazis seized control of Czechoslovakia and so takes place a full four years before the onslaught of the final solution. As such, the filmmakers could have had no inkling as to the savagery to come. However, Night Train to Munich does have a short sequence in which a young woman, Anna Bomash, played by Margaret Lockwood, is briefly imprisoned in a camp. We see the abuse of prisoners, the barbed wire and sadistic guards patrolling the fences. In the short time that she is there, Anna befriends another prisoner, Carl Marsden, played by Paul Henry. Why do they send you here? Oh, I'm a desperate character. I had a little school on the Sudeten border. I was ordered to abolish our language and to teach in German. And then illiterate Nazi group leader. So here I am. And you? My father escaped to England. I almost went back with him. Back? I was at school there. They arrested me to find out where he was hiding. And because I couldn't tell them, England. Well, good luck to him. Directed by Carol Reed, Night Train to Munich unwittingly set the tone for many films made by the Allies during the war. Clear and clean propaganda. Stories where the content was heavily restricted so the public morale could be maintained. Which means that rumours of the horrors being carried out inside Nazi-occupied Europe remained just that. And for the most part, British and American films made after the war would continue that line, with precious few resolving to directly address the horrors. An early exception was Orson Welles's The Stranger. Released in 1946, its plot centres on the hunt for a Nazi fugitive, Franz Kindler, played by Welles, who has assumed a new identity under the name of Charles Rankin in order to hide in the United States. But although The Stranger firmly belongs within the thriller genre, Wells took the extraordinary step of including graphic documentary footage from the murder camps. I've been showing your father some films and I'd like you to see them too. I'm on the Allied Commission for the Punishment of War Criminals. It's my job to bring escaped Nazis to justice. Despite its shocking content, Wells' film was a hit with audiences, earning back more than three times its production costs. Yet no one in Hollywood dared follow his lead. Which means that the first film to directly dramatise the victim's suffering comes not from victorious Allied powers, but from one of the countries that had survived the fascist storm. Ostatni Etap, or The Last Stage, is a Polish film made in 1948. It is a standout for many reasons. 
not least of which is that it was made in Auschwitz by survivors of the murder camps. Wanda Jakubowska and Gerda Schneider had been prisoners in Auschwitz-Birkenau and after their liberation, they wrote of their experiences. Jakubowska was a member of the Polish resistance when she was captured in 1942, while the German-born Schneider had been condemned to Auschwitz because of her communist beliefs. When Jakubowska then went to direct the film, she felt it appropriate to not only return to the scene of the crimes, but also cast other survivors as extras in the film. This delivers a verisimilitude unparalleled by other Holocaust dramas. Within a minute of the opening, and completely without dialogue, we see a husband and wife being pulled apart and the wife, along with other civilians, herded onto a truck. A hard cut then hurls us straight into Auschwitz and we are greeted by the indelible image of a train entering the camp. There, the huts, embedded across acres of soggy mud, spread out in all directions, on a scale that no other production could recreate. And within that sprawling space, Jakubowska reenacts such startling events as a small orchestra entertaining the camp guards, children being separated from their parents, and then led away to the chambers. Another hard cut then shows us a collection of the children's toys tossed alongside the belongings of all the other victims. Suitcases, shoes, glasses, clothes. The items are all that remain of those murdered. And yet, for all its startling authenticity and immediacy, the last stage consciously avoids a certain kind of murder. While Jakubowska does show us a number of victims being shot, she opted not to depict the mass murders in the gas chambers. Which partially returns me to the theatre of ancient Greece, where the depiction of violence on stage was prohibited because it was considered a sacred space. It would appear then that the gas chamber has become totemic, the place where God is said to have been absent, where the most evil acts were committed, is now an arena of such suffering, such catharsis and epiphanin, that the divine is revealed to us. Which brings me to Pavel Pavlovsky's multi-award winning film from 2013, Ida. Written by Pawlowski and Rebecca Lenkiewicz, the story is set in Poland in 1962 and begins with a young woman, Anna, played by Agata Trabakowska, who was raised in a convent when her parents were killed in the war. Anna has been training to become a nun, and scarcely a few days before she is due to take her vows, she is summoned to meet her aunt Wanda, played by Agata Kulesza. Wanda is a renowned legal prosecutor, feared for her merciless pursuit of people deemed to be enemies of the state. Wanda tells Anna that her real name is Ida Lebenstein and that she is not Catholic but Jewish. In telling this startling but not completely atypical story, Pawlowski made a series of daring but extremely effective decisions. To begin with, it is a film that addresses but does not depict the Holocaust. By the time the film begins, the murder camps have long been standing as monumental spaces silently commemorating the dead. Pawlowski's sound designers, Michael Della and Andreas Konsgaard, ensure that that silence murmurs throughout the film 
because the background sounds are kept to an absolute minimum. Every sound we hear is natural, not expressive. So it is the near silence that is used to reference the past. Another crucial decision Pavlovsky made was to ensure that his cinematographers Richard Lanchuski and Lukasz Zal framed the film in an aspect ratio of 137. This results in the close-ups looking like portraits, which in one way is what the film is about. After all, Pavlovsky has named the film for the title character. Additionally, with the exception of one brief sequence near the end, the camera barely moves, the frame relentlessly assuming a static position. That, with the aspect ratio, results in empty spaces creating asymmetrical and unsettling compositions. Here is Pavlovsky at the AFI in 2014, explaining some of his decisions. It was partly the result of just kind of looking how to make this 4x3 work in, in certain type of shots, you know, because it's a, it's, a great, it's a great format for portraits and double portraits, but sometimes it just felt very kind of heavy and square and I just said, you know, let, what happens if we just tilt up and have just more space above their heads and it sounded, it looked interesting and, you know, with a young DOP, Wukash Jal, we just kind of pushed further and further and just got completely carried away. This leads me to the decision to film in black and white. After Steven Spielberg's success with Schindler's List, the proposition of filming in monochrome might sound derivative to some. But where Spielberg filled his handheld frame with dozens of characters and hundreds of extras, Pavlovsky went in the opposite direction. The static frame not only drained of colour, but also of people. Remember, between 1939 and 1945, Poland lost a fifth of its population including 3 million Jewish people. All this comes into poignant focus when Wanda takes Ida to her parents' grave. It is not a grave, but an anonymous place in a forest, the site where they and Ida's cousin, Wanda's son, were murdered. Felix Schiebe, the neighbour who had initially sheltered Ida's parents, helps them locate the site. Schiebe confesses that it was he, and not the Nazis, who murdered Ida's parents and Wanda's son. Despite this revelation, Wanda, the state prosecutor, knows that she will be unable to bring him to justice. Instead, Schiebe digs down into the soil and finally unearths the remains. There are no tears, but there is a catharsis. An epiphany arrives. Standing over the now empty space, Ida asks, Why am I not here? In a way, Ida is here, with her parents and her young cousin. Her life was spared, but her identity perished with their murder. The place of their death also marks the beginning of a new false identity that life gave her. And so much else is in that empty space. Past and present, violence and rest, good and evil, villain and victim, the law and injustice, absence and presence. <laughs>